In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it desperately. We need to be reminded of what Advent prepares us for. We need to look forward to the coming of the King. We need to be uh, not so self-absorbed that it eats away at our faith. And we need to rest assured that your promises are true and that what you promise you will do. So enable us this day to set our hope on Christ and we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, some of you may know that I'm a fan of the Boston Red Sox. It's a well-kept secret. Um, And the last 13 years, I've seen the Red Sox win three world championships. And while they've all great, nothing compares to the first one back in 2004. See, for the previous 86 years, the Red Sox had been suffering under a curse commonly known as the Curse of the Bambino. Curse was a superstition thoroughly accepted throughout New England. Most fans took it seriously as it explained the failure of the Red Sox to win the World Series from 1918 to 2004. The misfortune began after the Red Sox sold the greatest player in history, Babe Ruth, the great Bambino, to the hated New York Yankees. Before that, The Red Sox had been one of the most successful franchises. They won the first World Series and then won five more. But after that sale, they went without a title for decades, even though they won the American League pennant four times. To make matters worse, with the addition of Babe Ruth, the previously lackluster Yankees went on to become the most successful franchise in sports history. So the curse became a focal point for all of the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry over the years. And the curse of the Bambino runs deep in Boston sports tradition uh, up until the 2004 playoffs. And here it said that the curse was reversed. After the completion of an impossible comeback against, you guessed it, the New York Yankees the American League Championship Series. The Yankees had taken a 3-0 series lead with a commanding 19-8 victory in the third game. Sox fans lost all hope. They'd given up because not only had a team never come back from a three-game deficit, but they had to do it against the same team who had beat them exactly one year earlier. When the famous Aaron Boone home run who was just named the manager of the Yankees. Well, just because the fans called it a season doesn't mean that's how they felt in the clubhouse. 
things were looking grim for the Red Sox in the fourth game. Uh, they were headed into the bottom of the ninth, trailing four to three when Kevin Millar stepped to the plate. Facing all-star closer Mariano Rivera, he was able to draw a walk and got the buzz back in Fenway Park. And as soon as he got on base, they sent in Dave Roberts to pinch run. This is a small, speedy guy who's now the manager of the Dodgers. So this set the stage for one of the most memorable moments of the entire season. Everyone that was paying any attention to baseball knew that Dave Roberts was in there for one reason, to steal second base. The Yankees knew it, the Red Sox knew it, everybody in the stadium knew it. That's why he was there. The very first pitch he took off. And he made it safely by a whisker. He doesn't steal second, Red Sox don't win. So he's now on second, and Bill Miller comes up. It's spelled Mueller, but it's pronounced Miller. And he comes up at the plate, and uh, they were worried because he was the American League batting champion that year. And so he's got the tying run on second, and he starts fouling off pitches. And finally he connects with a line drive that scores Dave Roberts from second, tying the game up. But it's not over. Fast forward to the bottom of the 12th inning. One man on, two outs. David Ortiz comes to bat. And he sends one over the right field fence for a two-run walk-off homer and the beginning of this incredible clutch player reputation. The Red Sox won, the historic comeback had begun. Game five saw another David Ortiz walk off. Game six was the famous bloody sock game of Kurt Schilling, and game seven saw Johnny Damon Grand Slam. And the Red Sox came back from a 0-3 deficit to beat the Yankees in a best of seven, and went on to sweep the Cardinals to win the 0-4 World Series. The curse had been such a part of Boston culture that there was a sign on the Longfellow Bridge, which goes over Storrow Drive, one of the busiest uh, roads in Boston, and the, the, there was a sign on the bridge that said, Reverse Curve. And somebody graffitied it to say, Reverse the Curse. And the officials left it in place until after the Red Sox won. And after the last game of the series, the road sign was edited with a new sign that said, Curse Reversed. So the curse of the Bambino was finally over. A new age begun for Red Sox baseball. They went on to win the series two more times. And when you add in the success of the Bruins, Celtics, and Patriots, you would have 10 rings in the last 16 years. It's good to be from Boston. So what does all that have to do with the Old Testament book of Amos? More than you think. You see, Amos is one of the hardest books in the Old Testament because it's a book of judgment. God calls the prophet Amos. He's just a shepherd, and he keeps sycamore trees, like fig trees. And he's from Judea, which is in the south, and God tells him, go to the north and be a prophet. Pulls him out of the field. And to tell them, like the Red Sox, that they're going to have 86 years of judgment. It may have been 88 years, but it doesn't work as well with the Red Sox thing. So 
We're just sort of fudging the years there a little bit. But he tells him, change your ways or you are going to be cursed by God. Why? Well, to answer that question asks us, or forces us to ask a couple more questions. Namely, who is Amos and what's the problem? You see, we're not used to prophets. There's not much in our society like prophets. Um, the Old Testament prophets are to society what Allied planes were to the POW camps in World War II, what the radio broadcasts were behind the Iron Curtain, what fax traffic was to China in the days of Tiananmen Square, and what the internet is today to the persecuted church. They let people know what's really going on. Prophets see who God is and what he's up to, and they come with a message. And they stand and preach in the face of criticism and abuse and apathy. It's rare to read a prophet and everybody says, oh, that's great, we love what you're saying. Usually they hate the prophet. So just remember that before you sign up for prophet school. They, uh, but they have no choice. God has sent them. And as Psalm 50 tells us, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. The writings of the prophets take up more space in the Bible than anything else, even more than the Gospels. The sheer volume and weight of their words should tell us that God loves to show himself, and he has a great deal to say. God speaks, and the prophets get up, go out, deliver the message. So, as we go through a look at some of these prophets over the next month, hopefully they will chip away at our hard hearts, reveal our lack of mercy, scrutinize our faith, and then stretch it and make us long for better days, and then give us hope for those days because they've been promised by the God who speaks. They confront us with powerful themes of the sovereignty of God and God's love and forgiveness, our need for faith and repentance, and God's demand that we listen to his word, that we take it seriously enough to believe it and then exercise real hope that what God says, he will do. So hopefully we'll learn those things. We're going to spend this Advent reading, looking, and learning from a few of the minor prophets, and we start with the book of Amos. Now, Amos is what we call one of the 8th century prophets. That's only important because it tells us it's before the exile. In the 8th century, approximately 798 to 722 BC, fudging the number, so it makes 86 years, Israel is doing pretty well, or so she thought. At this time, it's approximately 200 years after King David. His kingdom has been split in two. Judah is in the south and Israel in the north. And King Uzziah reigns in Judah and King Jeroboam II reigns in Israel. And they have reigned for over 40 years each. Amos is living in a time of great material prosperity. The long reigns of these two kings have brought stability and prosperity and expansion to the two kingdoms. Things are going well. The southern kingdom has subdued their enemies, the Philistines to the west, the Ammonites to the east, the Arab states to the south. The northern kingdom, to whom Amos goes, uh, was at the height of its power. Aram, her enemy to the north, has been defeated by the Assyrians. 
But Assyria couldn't press the advantage because they had a whole bunch of inept rulers until 745 BC uh, when uh, Tiglath-Pileser III shows up and he's a force to be reckoned with. This is taking place, the book of Amos, five years before that, 750 BC. So the Assyrians, those are the people that Jonah went to, they're five years away from becoming a dominant world power. But for now, Israel's doing well. They control trade, wealth is accumulating, and throughout the book of Amos, we read that commerce thrives and there's this uh, burgeoning upper class. They're building expensive homes. There's lots of evidence of prosperity in this book. But with this came corruption and injustice towards the poor, um, massive substance abuse, primarily drunkenness, and religious apostasy. So the rich are enjoying this idle, indulgent lifestyle while the poor became targets for legal and economic exploitation. Lots of slavery for debt. Standards of morality had sunk to a new low. And yet, somewhat oddly, religion was flourishing. Amos tells us the people thronged to the shrines for yearly festivals. They were offering sacrifices. And they maintained God is with them. And they also said they're immune to disaster. All because they were prosperous. And they thought prosperity was a sign of their faithful observance of the law. And since they were prosperous, they made the fatal assumption that they were religiously good. And you'll hear that every now and then. Somebody's doing well, or a church is doing well, or some ministry is doing well, and they'll say, God is so good to us. And sometimes God uses prosperity as a judgment. It's not always a positive thing in the Bible. So it was immensely difficult. God calls Amos to proclaim that the people are guilty and that God is going to bring destruction. And nobody believes him because they're doing so well. And they look at him and say, you're just, one, you're not even from here. You're from Judea. It's in the south. And we're in the north. And there seems to be a north-south dynamic in many countries. There certainly was in this country. But God had told them to go and to prophesy, and he had to obey. So he crosses into Israel and proclaims a message of great judgment for this nation if they don't return to the true worship of God. And so the book of Amos is a series of these messages that God gives Amos and he brings to the people of Israel. People have been called by God to be his own, but they've become so preoccupied with their own lives that they've essentially forgotten about God. Well, they still went to church, they still said the prayers, they still offered the praises, but darkness had settled over their hearts. And they're just going through the motions. <coughs> Excuse me. With little faith. No repentance. And they would tell you that going through the motions was enough. But God did not think so. So he sends them a prophet, Amos, with a word directly from him. 
And Amos comes and he reminds the people about God. He reasons with them. He argues with them. He tries to get them to respond to things they already knew about God. He's to preach to people who thought they knew God. And they would tell you they did. They kept up all the religious practices. They offered the sacrifices. They went to to, uh, church and they performed all the rituals and they didn't really mean any of it. And you can see how easy it would be even in our day and age to come and go through the motions and do the stuff but not really mean it. After all, we can't tell, but God can. And Amos comes and says, God doesn't want insincerity in worship. God's looking at your hearts, and your hearts are far from him. So he brings them the message of the Old Testament, the message of the New Testament. It's the word of all prophets. Repent. And Amos comes, and Amos hammers them. Like I said, it's one of the hardest books. Amos tells them that God hates their wealth. Amos 3, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, which tells you they had two houses. And the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So God hates their wealth. God hates their women. Amos 4, hear this word, you fat cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. You ever heard a woman called a fat cow? Well, now you know where that phrase comes from. God said it first. And God hates their men. Amos 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs, who sing idle songs, who drink wine in bowls and anoint them with the themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. So this is what the prophet Amos sees when he looks over the land of Israel. There's this pampered upper class living off the misery of the poor, contemplating their own comfortable beds, how to indulge all of their expensive tastes. At the same time, they're coming to church week after week after week to praise God in the belief that their prosperity and their comfort is a sign that God likes them. But God is not pleased with them. Because God hates their wealth, he hates their women, he hates their men, and he hates their false religion. Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. See, these are harsh words. I haven't even gotten to the hardest part yet. This book is tremendously hard to read. It's eight and a half chapters of judgment, one blast after the other. It's a frightening book filled with messages of condemnation and judgment. And at one point in chapter 7, God shows Amos visions of locusts and fire. And it's not a pretty picture. In fact, the last thing we read before we get to our passage, Amos 9, verses 8, 9, and 10, 
Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. He's basically saying all the people say we're good. We're prosperous. God likes us. You're all going to die. Joy to the world. (laughs) The pronouncements of judgment pile up one on top of the other on top of the other and it's so dark you just want to put the book down and never open it again. But if you do that you miss the most important part of the book. And those are the last four verses and that's our text for today. Amos 9 verses 11 through 15 tell us that God is going to fix everything. That God is going to set things right. That God is going to restore Israel. And we see that in four specific ways. The first of which is verse 11, the king restored. The king restored. That should be the first blank uh, there in your outline. It says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So with all the words of judgment, it would be incredibly audacious to hope that somehow God is going to bring good out of all of this. He's told them that he hates them. He hates their false faith. He hates their evil ways. He's going to destroy them. He's going to let many of them die. And he's going to let the rest be sent into exile. How can we possibly hope that any of this is going to turn out all right? One commentator says, it's possible to hope because of the transition from verse 10 to verse 11. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die. Verse 11, and that day I will raise up the booth of David. And he says this is the most abrupt transition in Amos and perhaps in the Bible. It's a transition from hatred to love, from lies to truth, from death to life. Amos wants us to know that God himself is going to initiate this transition. That after the judgment, that after the death and destruction of exile, God has promised he will raise up the booth of David. The once powerful house of David was but a booth in the days of Amos. Now these booths recall the Feast of Booths found in Leviticus 23, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And and these booths are just They're simply a form of a tent put up for the feast, but temporary, short-lived, and then taken down. And the imagery here is of the booth of David that it's about to come down. The time of feasting, the time of gladness, the time of prosperity is over. But the reality is the house of David, the Davidic kingship, the line of the Messiah as promised in 2 Samuel, has already started to fall apart. Ten of the tribes refused to recognize the authority of the Davidic rulers. 931 BC, they broke off, formed the northern kingdom of Israel, to whom Amos is preaching. And yet the Davidic booth, as pitiful uh, as it was in the days of Amos, it's going to get worse. At some point, it's going to totally collapse. 
and the last descendant of David to rule in Jerusalem is Zedekiah. And he is removed from the throne and carried into captivity in 586 BC. And at that point, it could be said, at least metaphorically, that the Davidic booth had fallen. And yet here, God promises that one day he would repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And the usage suggests that the term booth in the previous lines referring to the whole people of God. That even though they're currently divided into two kingdoms, in the future they're going to be reunited under one king who will be called David. Hosea uh, 3 tells us of that. It says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord the God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And this future David is none other than the son of David, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And although David's house has received considerable blows, it will not perish. The Lord would honor the promise he made through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But now the promise goes one step further. God would rebuild the house of David as in the days of old. The references to those glorious days, sort of the peak uh, days when the house of David under King Solomon was the leading kingdom in the region. And Jesus would be the fulfillment of these promises. And he actually even goes beyond Amos when Jesus declared in Matthew 12, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. We need to stop. Do you see the grace in the passage? When things are at their worst, when the situation is darkest, when there's no possibility of restoration, when there's no hope, God shows up. This is what grace does. God, in his grace, comes when it all seems dark, and he stirs the hearts to hope again, to recklessly and foolishly and audaciously hope again. And what are they hoping for? The restoration of the king. The raising up of the house of David. The rebuilding of the kingdom. And Amos is telling them that God is promising here that the king is coming. And not only will the king be restored, but the second way God is going to set things right is by having the realm expanded. Verse 12, the realm expanded. should probably throw in a plug for our new program called Realm, but... That would be inappropriate. Um, verse 12. <laughs> you know, I preached last week at another church and nobody laughed at anything I said. <laughs> and I was like, I, these are not my people. You know, they're all good people. They're really nice. They love Jesus. But it's just not the same. Um, anyway, verse 12. They may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So the purpose of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom was so that the true sons of Israel, those who survived the judgment, would take possession of the remnant of Edom. Edom is Israel's neighbor and their enemy. And they're going to be incorporated into the kingdom of the Messiah. The remnant of Edom in this promise is a specific example of a general principle. The restored Davidic kingdom under the reign of Jesus Christ would include all the nations who are called by my name. The references to all those who hear the word of the Lord and who by faith 
are incorporated into the true Israel of God. This messianic kingdom would become the means of reaching the nations of the world with the claims of Christ. All the way back in Amos, he's saying, we're going to bring in the Gentiles. That includes most of you, wherever you're from. And we have this wonderful promise to be called by God. To be called by someone's name, he says, who are called by my name, is to belong to that person, to have an association with that person, to belong to them in some sort of special relationship. And those who accept Christ through faith are incorporated into the family of God. They become part of that group, which is the special possession of God. And Amos is declaring that a day is going to come when the people of God are going to be reformed under the greater David, the future king, and represented by Edom, the Gentiles here get to be a part of the kingdom. That's good news. Through the gospel, they become fellow heirs and partakers of the promise. Now, at the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15, first general assembly, first Presbyterian church, they uh, didn't use that then, but they meant to, I'm sure. Um, but this text is actually cited by James, the brother of Jesus, to give biblical justification for evangelism to the Gentiles. He says in Acts 15, after they finished speaking, James repli replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things. The usage of the Amos 9 passage in Acts 15 suggests that the purpose of the restoration of the kingdom under the Lord Jesus Christ is that Gentiles can be included within the family of God. And thus, evangelism, outreach, sharing the gospel with others is part of God's plan from the very beginning. So we have the king restored, the realm expanded. The third thing, my favorite part, the curse reversed. You knew that was coming. The curse reversed, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. By the way, you plowed the ground in October. You sowed the seed in December. You reap the harvest in March, and at least for the grape harvest, you treaded the grapes to make the wine in June. It was a seasonal thing. And here God is saying, how would you like to live in a world in which it comes, when it comes time to plow in October, the reapers aren't done harvesting all the produce that came out of the field in March? How would you like it if there are so many grapes that they haven't finished treading the grapes when it comes time to plant more in December. That's what he's saying here. Then everybody's hearing that is going like, wait a minute, time out. There's no such place on the face of the earth that's that fertile. There's no land that abundant. There's no such thing. And Amos is saying, you're right. 
but the day is coming when there will be, and there will be no more hunger, and there will be such wealth, and there's such abundance, and no scarcity. It will be the end of capitalism, and the end of socialism, and the end of every ism. See, there's a physical curse in the Bible in Genesis 3, when God talks to Adam and says, because you've eaten of the tree that I commanded you, that you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Joanne was out gardening yesterday. It was painful for her. So, if you've done gardening, you know that. I supervised. Not so painful. They, uh, but now, the king comes. And he says, look at the land. The curse is reversed. And God says, not only that, but new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Nothing grows on the top of the mountain and the top of the hills. It's too cold. The soil's too thin. All that comes down is cold water, but not now. How would you like to live in a world where you don't need plowing and you don't need sowing and you don't need reaping and sweet wine just flows down out of the mountains like water? What are we talking about here? We're talking about a king who, when he comes, doesn't just deal with the social problems, but he actually heals the world physically. This is a world in which there's no hunger and no poverty and no racism and no injustice. There's no disease, no sickness, no death. Every other religion but Christianity believes this material world is an illusion that's going to pass away or someday we'll leave it, go off to whatever their version of heaven is, and that'll be it. And Christianity alone of the world religions has hope for the salvation of this world. Only Christianity says God so loves the material world that he became a part of it at Christmas. He was born in a manger. He came down from heaven and was made man. Only Christianity says God so loves this material creation that he came into it. He suffers and dies and his body is raised up in order to heal it. Only this faith has an eternal future that has in it ordinary life. Eating and drinking and embracing and music and dancing. Ordinary life. The king will come. The realm will expand. The curse is reversed, and finally God is going to set things right through the rule eternal. Verses 14 and 15, the rule eternal. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. God has promised that his people would inherit the glorious kingdom that he's been describing. He declares his intention to restore the fortunes of my people Israel. The idea is that the people who are, they're going to be humiliated. They're going to be captured, sent into exile. They're going to be oppressed. But they're also going to experience this wonderful new day. They will build up the ruined cities and enjoy the fruit of their efforts and, and actually dwell in those cities. And not only are they going to plant vineyards, they're going to drink the wine and they're going to plant gardens and eat the fruit. And Amos is declaring that all the frustrations of our lives would not be the experience of the citizens in Christ's kingdom. The last of these great promises of Amos stresses the permanence 
of the inheritance of God's promise in the messianic age. Never again will there be an exile. Never again would there be insecurity. Never again would there be judgment. God declares he will plant them on their land. The picture here is of a tree firmly rooted in the ground. The Messiah's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The people shall never again be uprooted. The land, the kingdom, is their inheritance. What's being described here in Old Testament language is the equivalent of what Jesus himself says in John 10. I gave them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. All that's good to know. Some of you need to hope again. In your plans, in your idealism, in your vision how life was going to go, you thought things would turn out differently than they have. But the steady drumbeat of life in this world, with its sorrow and pain and physical and emotional suffering, the losses that we all must endure, have turned your idealism into cynicism. And you've become cynical and critical and hard because you can't take any more disappointment. And if that's you this morning, and I know it's some of you, hear the word of God. There is a reason to hope again. God has brought this word from the prophet Amos to remind you this Christmas season that it's okay to hope again. Earlier I said the transition from verse 10 and death to verse 11 in life was one of the most abrupt transitions in the Bible. It's a transition from hatred to love, lies to truth, death to life. And God himself is going to initiate that transition. But actually, the Bible is full of abrupt transitions. One of the great studies you can do is look up all the places where the Bible says, but God. And you'll have a catalog of abrupt transitions. And while this transition is not only abrupt, but amazing for the people of Israel, the coming transition is even more abrupt and more amazing. At the end of the Minor Prophets, Malachi speaks. He's the last prophet in the Old Testament. I don't think he's the last Old Testament prophet. I think that title belongs to John the Baptist. But he's the last prophet in the Old Testament, and then nothing is heard for 400 years. There's no prophets. God has gone quiet. And the words of Amos' prophecy in Amos 8 are fulfilled. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And there was 400 years of silence. But then, an angel shows up. And he appears to a young virgin girl named Mary. We find the story in Luke 1. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. David's great descendant, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has broken the back of the sin that alienated men from God, has broken the back of it for all those who put their trust in him. And that fact turns human life into something completely different than most people imagine it to be. It's the question to put to yourself about absolutely everything in your life? Am I thinking, feeling, speaking, living as someone who knows that I deserve God's judgment? That Amos 1 through 9 and a half should apply to me. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I get the last four verses. I am soon to be in a world where everlasting joy rests on everyone's head. If you could see the king there in his glory, if you could see the beauty of that place, if you could see the smiles on everyone's face, if you could feel the gladness and the goodness in every heart, if you could see such full, excuse me, fullness of life stretching out before you forever and ever and ever, you wouldn't think of anything in your life today in the same way, not the sorrows, not the joys. And that's the future of every Christian. This is your Christmas hope. And yes, it is audacious. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And I will close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that as always you have spoken to us by your Son. And once again, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess that we often live as people without hope. Though we claim the name of Jesus, our hearts turn elsewhere when troubles come. We need the audacious hope of Amos 9. Give us a vision of eternal life. Motivate us to renew our faith in Christ. Thank you that the King is coming. Thank you that his reign covers all people. Thank you that the curse has been reversed, that his rule is one of everlasting joy. Thank you for all of that. Grant that we believe it and live like it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.